I am your anchor, an ever-present help. In calm waters or through the storm, I am with you. When you feel weak, I am your strength, your provision in times of need. I am with you. In the highs and the lows, in every rhythm of life, I am with you. Your guide, your wisdom, your counsel, a light for the path and a lamp to your feet. I am with you to the very end of the age. You are never alone. Well, thank you very much for that. Uh, welcome, everybody. It is uh, great to be here, it really is, and particularly to bring uh, this last part of this great series, Never Alone, where we've been looking at that glorious truth that when we uh, become Christians, the Holy Spirit comes to live on the inside of us, that is, the Holy Spirit comes to indwell us, and as such, we are never alone. And we've been looking at uh, many of the, the blessings uh, that that glorious truth uh, brings. Um, for Christmas uh, this year, uh, my wife Becky bought me a present which wasn't to be used for a few months' time. It was uh, to go to London for an evening out in, uh, in April. And um, because she'd booked it sort of a few months before when we actually needed to go, she made a mistake. Uh, instead of booking it for a Saturday, she accidentally booked it for a Friday. No big deal, I'm sure you might think, but for my very uh, administratively efficient wife, this was something of a source of shame. So she spent a fortnight walking around the house in sackcloth and ashes, uh, talking about how much she abhorred herself. But after that, uh, she felt better. So feel free to bring it up with her if you, if you see her around. But the point was that because she'd booked it for a weekday instead of uh, a Saturday, it meant that I had to get my lectures covered for that day. So somebody else had to organize this, somebody else had to cover my lectures for me. And as the week, the Friday approached in April, I was getting excited about our trip out to London. Uh, but then on the Friday morning when I woke up, all of a sudden, the excitement kind of ebbed away. I realized that actually, in order to get to London, we didn't actually have to leave until the afternoon. And that meant then that in the morning, really, I'd have to get on with some work. Uh, it meant that there'd be sort of emails to answer and queries to deal with and things, tasks I had to be getting on with. And I don't mind um, working from home, but sometimes it feels a little bit like being under house arrest. And that's kind of how it felt at this particular moment. But then all of a sudden I realized, hang on a minute, no I don't, because actually a few weeks before, even though I knew we were only going down in the afternoon, I booked the entire day off as annual leave. And so I'm covered, I am free. And you know how in life sometimes it's those little victories that are the sweetest? Well, this was one of those moments, it's a proper punch the air, I am free. I don't have to worry about those emails, don't have to do those queries. I know if anyone tries to get in touch with me, there'll be a, a, you know, a nice little um, automatic reply on my email, basically saying, just leave me alone, I'm off, but in kinder language, obviously. And so I thought to myself, isn't that wonderful? I, I'm free, I can do whatever I want. On the one minute, I was feeling all sort of oppressed and like there was stuff to be going on, uh, stuff to be getting on with. The next minute, I felt entirely free. One minute, I thought, if you like, I was kind of under the rule of work. And the next minute, I realized, no, 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 I'm at home. And when I'm at home, ladies and gentlemen, I play by my own rules. Okay? 
technically speaking, they're my wife's rules, but nevertheless, <laughs> it still was this wonderful experience of freedom flooding over. But what's strange is this, is that actually I was no more free when I realized I'd booked the day as annual leave than I was five minutes before when I'd forgotten I'd booked it as annual leave. In other words, I'd booked it a few weeks before. I'd booked the whole day. I was free. I was legally free. I was factually free. But it wasn't until I realized that all of a sudden I became, if you like, free in my experience. My experience caught up with the reality. And I think that's something like um, the truth for us as Christians. Most of us here, I'm sure, would accept the truth that, especially after this series, I hope, that the Holy Spirit has come to live on the inside of us. As well as that, we would accept, as it says in 2 Corinthians 3.17, where the Holy Spirit is, there is freedom. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So if the Holy Spirit is in us, and where the Spirit is, there is freedom, then we are free. However, many of us in our experience, it's like we're not living in that freedom. We're not experiencing that freedom. And so my prayer today is a little bit like I got when I got that revelation, that realization that actually I'd booked the annual leave, that we will today, as we look at two things in particular, by revelation from his word, we will get a revelation, a realization of the freedom that the Holy Spirit has already given to us and that the Holy Spirit continues to do in our lives and that every single person will leave today walking in a greater measure of freedom than they did when they walked in. How about that for the end of a sermon series? So the first thing I want us to look at is this. Number one, by the Spirit we are free to live without fear. Can you say that for me please? By the Spirit, we are free to live. Now, when I say without fear there, I don't mean that that means when you become a Christian, you will never have anything to be scared of and you'll never experience any kind of fear. Again, some fear is healthy. If you're playing in the road and there's a big uh, lorry coming towards you, it's good to be scared of that lorry. It will motivate motivate you to do the right thing, get onto the pavement. What I'm talking about here is being free from the kind of fear that becomes um, a sort of deciding feature, a factor in your life. A fear that actually starts to take over and making decisions for you. Now maybe you're here, you're here and you're a Christian, and again you'd agree that as a Christian you should be free, but you'd say that actually your life is gripped by fear. You have fear in your circumstances, fear for your safety, fear for your future, fear for your loved ones maybe. Perhaps you don't feel quite like that, but nevertheless, you'd still say that fear is something of a decisive factor in your life. Perhaps fear is what's stopping you stepping up to another level of ministry. I'm sure many of us would perhaps admit to feeling something of a fear when it comes to sharing our faith. And with talking Jesus coming up, there's a particularly important fear that we would like to be free from. So when I say we're talking about freedom from fear here, I'm talking about getting rid of it as that dominant deciding factor in our lives. And the Bible has many things to say on being free of fear. What we're going to look at here is not the only Bible verse about it. But the area we're going to look about the Spirit freeing us from fear is, in my opinion, uh, for two of the most beautiful verses in the Bible from one of the most beautiful chapters. It's uh, Romans chapter 8 verses 15 and 16, where the Apostle Paul writes this, The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. 
The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. So it's a wonderful couple of verses there. Two of my favorites in the whole of the Bible. And notice what the Apostle Paul here says. The Spirit you receive, that is the Holy Spirit that you receive that came to indwell you, does not make you slaves. And his contrast with that is rather than the Spirit coming into your life to make you a slave. No, the Spirit came to bring about your adoption. So it's by the Spirit that we become children of the living God, children of a loving Heavenly Father. What he's saying here is kind of unpacking something that Jesus said in John chapter 14. And hopefully John chapter 14 rings a bell because John chapter 14 is the chapter from where we get the text that we've been basing this sermon series on. It's where Jesus is talking with his disciples. He's explained that he's going to be going away to be at the right hand of the Father at some point. And they're gutted, as you would be if you'd hung around with Jesus all those years and he said he was going. But what Jesus says is, don't worry. Why? Because I'm going to send you somebody else. Who is that person? It's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is going to come, he's going to be with you, he's going to be in you. And as such, we are never alone. That's what we've been looking at. But what I want you to notice is what Jesus actually says in chapter 14, verses 17, 18. For he lives, talking about the Holy Spirit, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. You notice what Jesus is saying there. He's kind of saying to his guys, he's saying, you know, it's like I've been this sort of father figure to you. And okay, I understand that you're sad that I'm going to go. And in a sense, when I do, I'll be leaving you as spiritual orphans. But I'm not going to leave you as orphans. Why not? Because I'll be sending the Holy Spirit to be with you and be in you. So why would the Holy Spirit coming and being in them stop them being spiritual orphans? Because it's by that Holy Spirit that the Spirit brings about our adoption. And so what Jesus is saying here is, you won't be orphans anymore because when the Holy Spirit comes, the Holy Spirit will bring about your adoption. And what the Apostle Paul is doing is simply unpacking this, I guess, a little bit. And what he's saying is more than that, now you're adopted, you will no longer live in fear again. Almost like he's saying, you know, before when you're a spiritual orphan, then actually fear will be a decisive factor in your life. But it doesn't have to be like that anymore. When you've received the spirit that brings about your adoption, you will no longer live in fear again. You won't be enslaved to fear. In other words, what he's saying is adoption is the antidote to fear. Um, just last month, I, uh, I went to get my hair cut. And I've had this revelation before when having my hair cut. I don't know whether it's something to do with having my glasses off while they're cutting my hair or just them getting rid of bits of it and putting the water in various places. But I realise that I'm just getting more and more bald, okay? Uh, I just say here, I can see a few of you may be offended by that. Uh, If you are bald, I've nothing against you. I love you. I just never thought I'd be like you. Okay, that's all. (laughs) And when I'd had my haircut, and uh, the guy, it should be 12 pounds for a gent's haircut, and I went to pay at the end, and the guy said to me, "Uh, that's just 10. And... (laughs) So you're ahead of me there, because I thought, oh, great. Yeah, he must really like me, so he's giving me this. But then I realized, no, he was giving me a discount, because he was thinking, I haven't really done a full day's work there, have I? <clears throat> and so I got home, and I told my wife, Becky, about this. And I could kind of see her sort of rolling her eyes and mentally filing it away in her little folder, which says, yet another grievance or perceived slight Tom has about losing his hair. Because uh, she hears many of these stories. It's become something of a genre in our house. 
And one time she actually said to me, because I brought one of these things up, she said, like, you know, why are you so bothered? I think Becky knows for all of my many faults that vanity is not terribly high on the list. So she's sort of <laughs> surprised that I'd be so bothered by this. And I said, well, it's not really that I'm that bothered. It's just, it's just come as a bit of a surprise. I mean, after all, you know, my, my dad, he's got a full head of hair. His dad had a full head of hair. She said, well, what about your mum's side? I said, well, my mum's got a full head of hair. <coughs> and she laughed heartily. And then... But I knew what she was getting at, of course. She was talking about your mum's side of the family. And, of course, we both realised at the same time, I don't know. I never met my mum's dad. And the reason for that is, shortly after my mum was born, she was put up for adoption. There was a, an orphanage, actually, across the road from the hospital in which she was born, and she was actually placed, not far from where she was born, in that orphanage. And two months later, a very nice couple came along called Thomas and Mary Smith, known better to me as Grandad Tom and Nanny Molly, and they adopted her. They chose her. They took her out of the orphanage and they placed her in the family home. And just as it was in the uh, 20th century in Merseyside, so it was in the first century where the Apostle Paul is writing this letter. This is the image he's using. To be adopted meant literally to be placed as a child. That's what he's saying. He's saying that the Spirit brought about your adoption, took you, took you away from your spiritual orphanage, if you like, and you've now been placed in the family home with a loving Heavenly Father as your adopted father. And what he's using is saying this is therefore the antidote to fear. So why is it that the Spirit bringing about your adoption is the antidote to fear? Well, for one thing, adoption brings security. You think about my uh, mum in that situation. Once she was adopted and brought into the family home, there was security. You know, if there was a bump in the night, I dare say my nan would have dug my granddad in the ribs and he would have had to go down and check, you know, what the noise was all about, you know, drive off anybody trying to break in or anything like that, make sure the house is secure and safe, uh, look after her as she'd grown up, make sure they're looking after her education and clothing her and all that kind of stuff. There's security in her present, if you like. There's also security for her future making sure she makes the right big life decisions and so on. And when they died, her future was still secure because there was an inheritance for her. I remember because I got some of that. <laughs> and it's the same for us as Christians. When we are adopted because of the spirit of adoption, because the spirit brings about our adoption, we now have security. God is watching over us. He's looking out for us. What's more, our future is secured. He's always with us. And God's not going to die, but when we die, we get a glorious inheritance. Our future is secured. We don't have to fear death. We don't have to fear condemnation. God did not adopt you so that he could condemn you. There is security in being adopted. You know what else there is? There's provision. Once mom was adopted into the family home, she didn't have to worry about where she was going to get food from or scrap around with the other babies to find who's going to get the bottle of milk or anything like that. No, 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 she could go to the cupboards to get food. There'd be meals provided. When she needed clothes, they would buy the clothes for her. There was provision, and it's the same with us as Christians. Now we've been adopted by, because the Holy Spirit has brought that about, we have a loving Heavenly Father who provides for us. What did Jesus say? He said, you know, don't worry. You know, don't worry. Look, look at the birds of the air. They're not worrying about stuff. They know that Father in Heaven is going to look after them. How much more is He going to look after you? God is a father who knows how to look after his kids. Yeah, he will provide for you. So for those reasons, we have security. We have provision. 
But you know what else adoption means? You know why it's the antidote to fear? Adoption means we are loved. And this is really important to say. It might sound like it goes without saying, but it doesn't. Some of you may have a bad experience with a father or perhaps a bad experience with adoption. And it's very important to say here that actually, um, though those may be you know, bad experiences, what the Apostle Paul is talking about here is a good experience. In fact, it's arguably the best experience. What he's saying here is, no, this isn't an adoption by some absent um, father who will come in and out or something like that. You know, this isn't being adopted and then having some father who doesn't. No, no. This is being adopted by a loving father. This is an act of love. You were chosen because he loved you, because he wanted you. And the Apostle Paul makes this really clear. We can see when we get into verse 15, it says, so the Spirit comes along and it's the Spirit that causes our adoption and by the Spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. In other words, the Spirit causes us to cry, Abba, Father. That word cry in the Greek there means like a a cry from the depths. This is a real cry, a deep cry, a meaningful cry. And what do we cry? What does the Spirit work in us? We cry, Abba, Father. That word Abba is a translation of the Aramaic word Abba. In other words, it's not really a translation at all. They just kept that word. The reason they kept that word is because if you translate it, which it could be as Papa or Daddy or something like that, you lose something of the richness of what the word actually meant. It carried this kind of overtone of, of respect and reverence and so on, but also an intimacy. This is an intimate love. This is a child crying out to their Abba Father. It's still used that word Abba today. In fact, I've got a, a lovely picture of what this word uh, means, what it looks like. Years ago when I, I went to Israel, I remember I'd not long been off the plane. I was hanging around the baggage carousel, had one of those trolleys, and people from the party were, were putting on all their bags, etc. And I was just, you know, sort of... Um, taking in the culture, which is Christian for eavesdropping. Um, and there was a, a lady just a few feet away from me. She was chatting on her phone. She had two little Jewish boys in front of her. And she was having a conversation with presumably her husband. And one of the little boys was very keen to speak to his father. And he was just sort of doing that thing of reaching up and she was sort of swatting him away. And then eventually she sort of gave up, pulled the phone away from her face, looked at the little boy with a smile and said, you want to speak to Abba? Speak to Abba. And the little boy grabbed the phone and he picked it up and he went, Abba, Abba. I thought, isn't that a beautiful picture of the intimate, loving relationship we now have with our adopted father because the Spirit brought about our adoption? So because we have security, because we have provision, because we are loved. And again, this is not the love of a distant father, not the love of a father who doesn't know how to give cuddles and doesn't know how to express himself. No, this is a father who knows how to love. This is a perfect father who gives perfect love. And I've got a question for you. What does perfect love cast out in the Bible? All fear. So because of provision, because of love, because of security. Adoption is the antidote to fear. And how does this become true in our experience in our lives? We just need to get a revelation of this. We need to understand deep down in our being that we have a loving Heavenly Father that's adopted us, that's looking out for us, that's providing for us, that loves us. Once we really get that, fear becomes an increasing measure, just something of the past, something that distances itself. The greater the revelation, the greater the measure of freedom from fear we can walk in. But how do we get that revelation? Well, partly it's just what I'm doing today. 
Yeah, hopefully anointed by the Holy Spirit, bringing out the word of God. Hopefully that is going into your soul now, giving you that revelation, driving out that fear. But as well as that, there is an experience that we can have. It's called the testimony of the Holy Spirit. And this goes way beyond just thinking and cognition. This goes deep into our spirits, deep into our beings. And this comes in Romans chapter 8 and verse 16. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. I've looked at this verse. Maybe my favorite verse in the Bible, maybe. I've looked at it for years and I'm absolutely convinced that this is talking about a particular experience that is open to people. And it is when the Holy Spirit gives testimony, makes it abundantly clear to our spirit deep inside us that we are God's children. In the ancient world, if somebody adopted somebody, you had to have a witness there to testify that that adoption was real, that this was the father, that this was the new child. It was very important to do that because there was an inheritance at stake. You didn't want someone to die and then someone to claim later on, well, I was adopted, just so they could take the money. So you had to have a witness there, someone to testify. And because it was such an important thing, obviously you wanted a reliable testimony, a reliable witness. Is there a more reliable witness in the universe than God the Holy Spirit? No. And it's God the Holy Spirit who testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. What does this actually mean for us? It isn't simply a repeat of what's just been said, that we have been adopted. This isn't talking about the Spirit doing its work of bringing about our adoption. This is talking about the Spirit's witness confirming our adoption. This is different. You can be converted... Be a child of God, but not have had this experience. And that means this is something we can pray for. This is something we will pray for at the end. How does it change things? It brings an assurance way beyond anything we've known if the Spirit testifies to our spirit that we are God's child. Um, A couple of years ago, our little boy Jack, we um, uh, put him into nursery um, just to get used to it initially uh, for a couple of half days a week. And uh, the first half day was going to go in just for a a Monday morning. Uh, Both Becky and I were at home. I was doing some uh, marking of exams. And Becky went to take Jack off to nursery. And um, 20 minutes or so later, she came back. And she was just in absolute bits. I mean, she was just crying. It was one of those things where she came through. It was just, you know, it was sort of scary at first. Because I was thinking to myself, you know, what's happened? And And by the time I sort of, you know, got through to her, etc. What she basically said was it had just been a horrible experience. She'd got there and he'd started to cry and he'd got all clingy and he didn't want taking away and it was just horrible. And she was just in bits about it and she was just saying, you know, we're going to have to pull him out of nursery, he's not going to go there, we're going to have to keep him at home till he's 50 and all this kind of stuff. <laughs> and then a few hours later, she went, she picked him up, she came back and, you know, things started to improve in the atmosphere in the Webster house for the rest of the afternoon and so on. But the next morning, knowing that we were going to have to take Jack to nursery again, I decided, right, Tom, this is one of these moments where as the man of the house, you're going to have to step up. And I said, look, all right, sweetheart, I know it was difficult for you, but don't worry, I will go and I'll, you know, I, I think I'll be all right, okay? So you can, I know you know where this is going, but let me finish. <clears throat> So I took him down and everything was going fine. We got out of the car and we, we got in there. We were in the sort of little waiting room and I was, um, you know, getting him out of his shoes into his little slippers that they wear when they're playing about in the nursery and so on. Um, but then he started to get a little bit clingy and he was looking around as other children were being sort of taken off. 
And then this lady, the nursery worker, turned up and sort of presented herself as the person that was going to take him into the nursery. And all of a sudden, he got really, really clingy, and I kind of had to peel him off myself. And then he was crying, and she was taking him away, and she sort of had him over her shoulder, and she was walking away from me. And he went through, opened this door, and I could see through the pane of glass in the door, him just over her shoulder, kind of reaching out like this, crying, kind of go away. It's like one of those movies where someone's like falling down an elevator shaft, going, no, looking back. So I went back to Becky and I was like, we're going to have to get him out of nursery. We're going to have to keep him at home until he's 50 and all that kind of stuff. But then a few hours later, after a, a stiff coffee and a few talking tos, etc., I got back in the car and I went to pick him up. And I got through feeling a lot happier this time and got into the waiting room and I said, I'm Jack's dad. They said, we've heard of you. No, they hadn't been here. So someone went to get him. And I just waited. And I was looking through the same pane of glass in the door that he'd been taken out of. And all of a sudden, I saw this nursery worker come through, holding hands with this rather frightened-looking little boy. And he came up, and then all of a sudden, he clocked me through the pane of glass. And he saw me, and I saw him, and this big smile came across his face. And he came, and the nursery worker sort of flung the door open, and he started running towards me, and I ran towards him, and I picked him up, and I gave him a big hug, and I toiled him round, and I got down on my knees, and I gave him another hug. Now, what was happening at that moment? Was that the beginning of our relationship? Was that when I first realized that I loved Jack? Was that when I first realized that I was Jack's father? Was that when Jack first realized that he loved me or that I was his father? No, we weren't beginning the relationship. We were testifying to the relationship. And that is what the Holy Spirit is doing in verse 16 here. This is describing an experience whereby the Holy Spirit, if you like, picks us up and says, I love you, my child. In other words, we could say it like this. Verse 15, where we cry, Abba, Father, is saying, Father, I love you. And verse 16 is where the Father says, Child, I love you. And because of this, because of the Spirit bringing about this adoption and then confirming this adoption, if we get a revelation of this, Again, the greater the revelation, the greater measure of freedom from fear we will walk in. And at the end of this message, I'm going to give you an opportunity. In fact, I'm just going to force it upon you. (laughs) I'm going to pray for you to have that experience. It may be that you've been born again, you're a child of God, but you never had the confirmation from the Holy Spirit. Maybe you've had it. Well, I'm going to pray for an increase. Maybe you don't know if you've had it. Well, I'm going to pray for it anyway. And I apologize now if anyone gets unnecessarily blessed, but we're going to pray for everybody. And the greater the revelation of this, the greater the measure of freedom from fear we walk in. So number one, by the Spirit, we are free to live a life without fear. Number two, by the Spirit, we are free to live the new life. Again, can you say that for me? Our adoption as sons and daughters of God is not the end of the story. It's the beginning of the story. Why did God adopt us? Not just to finish things off there, but to begin things. Why did my nan and granddad adopt my mum so that they could give her a new life? Same with God. The Father adopted us to give us a new life, a new way of doing things, the new way, the Christian life. And because the Holy Spirit is with us throughout the Christian life, just as he was there at the beginning to free us from fear, he's there throughout the Christian life to free us to live the new life. That is, the Christian life is a life of freedom. Now, some people might hear that and think, well, surely not. You know, surely Christianity, looking at it from the outside, is not a life of freedom at all. Freedom is following your desires. Christianity is following God's desires. So if you're not free to follow your own desires and you've got to follow someone else's, how can that be a life of freedom? 
And many people, I think, are actually put off becoming a Christian, put off faith, put off coming to know Jesus, because they fear that actually if they do, then it will reduce their freedom, it will curtail their freedoms. But I would argue that actually becoming a Christian, receiving the Holy Spirit, is really the only true free life we'll ever have. After all, if we just take the idea that freedom is simply doing whatever you desire, freedom is doing whatever you want, if we just take that idea and think about it for a moment, we'll see that actually it's a little bit more complex than that. Let me give you a personal example. When I was younger, particularly when I was in my early 20s, I think it's fair to say I did whatever I wanted. And what I wanted to do was go to a pub and drink. And the problem was, once I'd started drinking, it seemed all the more, increasingly, I wanted to go back and get another pint and then another pint and so on. But I was free to do so. Um, You know, I was over 18, I had enough money to buy it, there's no law against it. So I was free to do that. I was following my desire. But what would happen is I would get drunk and then I would do something stupid. And sometimes it might be sort of funny, something you could laugh off. Other times, it was something really embarrassing. It would make me feel really, really foolish. And the next morning, when the sort of memory loss was disappearing and I'd remember something I'd done, I'd start to feel the physical effects of shame. I hated it. But the trouble was, the only time I sort of felt okay again was when I then sort of got drunk and was a little bit numb to some of these feelings going. And I just got stuck in this cycle. I was free to do whatever I wanted. But was I really free? No, I was, I was in bondage. And so it's a bit more complex to say that freedom is simply doing whatever you desire. Very often, especially when there's lots of freedom available, when people have got endless amounts of money or endless amounts of power, they often end up actually in more bondage than they started out in. So it's a bit more complex than that. Now, somebody might say, well, fair enough, but that still doesn't make Christianity free. You know, for example, let's say somebody um, does have an alcohol problem and they become a Christian, and all that's going to do is make them feel even worse about having the alcohol problem because they're going to read loads of Bible passages and commands of God saying, you know, you're not allowed to get drunk, etc. And the only alternative is to sort of white-knuckle it and try and do it God's way, etc. But then that's not really freedom. You're just going to be bound up in this sort of miserable, abstinent rule-keeping. And sadly, many people do actually act as if that is what Christianity is all about. You either have, on the one hand, you follow your own desires and you end up in bondage to sin, or you try and follow all the commands and things that God gives you in the Bible, and you end up in bondage to just this soulless, lifeless, miserable rule-keeping. In some ways, it's a bit of an exaggeration, but in some ways, that's actually more like what Old Testament life was like. It is absolutely not what Christianity is, what New Testament living was like. Let me explain. In the Old Testament... God dealt with his people in a different way. They were under what the Bible calls the old covenant. They were under the law. That is, God said, you're my people, and here's the law. Here's how I want you to live. And they often found themselves in that kind of cycle. They would either follow their own heart's desires, their hearts of stone, their sinful hearts, and end up in bondage to sin, or they'd get out of that, and they'd be in bondage to keeping the rules, etc., Okay, keeping the rules might be better than getting in bondage to sin, but you couldn't argue it was really a free life. Now, if Christianity was exactly that, it would be a fairly miserable existence, and we couldn't argue that it was really a free existence. But actually, it's different. God now deals with his people in a different way, not according to the law, but according to a different way. Not according to the old covenant, but according to the new covenant. And I've got good news for you. We live in the new covenant. The covenant 
after Christ died and was buried and resurrected and has poured out his spirit and made his spirit available to all of us. And we can actually see the contrast of this in the Old Testament because the prophet Ezekiel actually talks about God speaking through him, God through Ezekiel, talks about a time when God will deal with his people differently. This is so important to look at. You might say, oh, thousands of years ago, what's it got to do with us? Everything. Because what God is describing here is the experience that we live in now and how it's different from the old covenant. He says this, Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will move from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And notice the difference here. God is going to take out the old hard heart. The heart that never wanted to follow God's desires but wanted to follow the sinful desires. He's going to replace that heart of stone with a heart of flesh. In other words, he's going to take out the hard heart and put in a fleshly, soft heart, a movable heart. And I will put my spirit in you and I will move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. So what's he saying? He's saying in the new covenant, I'll put my spirit on the inside of you. Put my spirit to indwell you. Yes, you'll never be alone. And what will the Spirit do? What does it say it'll do? The Spirit will bend your arm up your back and force you to live God's way. Or the Spirit will scare you into having to white knuckle it and bite your fingernails down to the quick just by horrible rule keeping. No, the Spirit will move you. It's very lovely, gentle language what the Spirit does in here. It's, he's a persuader. He's not someone who forces you. What does this mean? Well, it means now living in the new covenant. We're not under the law. Nothing wrong with the law, by the way. But we're no longer under that system, we're under a new system, whereby because the Spirit is inside us, we're actually moved to want to live God's way. It's not about rule keeping, it goes beyond rule keeping. We're happy to keep the rules, we barely even think about it, because we actually want to live that way. The Apostle Paul puts it like this, but now by dying to what once bound us, we have been released, yeah, freed from the law, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. In other words, the old way was, here's a bunch of rules you've got to follow, good rules, but rules written externally. And your heart doesn't like these rules. So your heart follows your own way, ends up in bondage to sin, or goes against itself, follows the rules, but either way, you're not free. We don't live that way. We live by the new covenant. And what is the distinguishing factor of the new covenant? Well, the Apostle Paul makes it clear here. He calls it the new way of the Spirit. The distinguishing factor of the new covenant, of the new way of living the Jesus way is you have the Holy Spirit on the inside of you. What does this mean? It means the Holy Spirit, if you walk with him, if you listen to his prompting, if you live his way, the Holy Spirit will actually convince you that your desires and God's desires are the same. So your desires start to accord with God's desires and then when you follow your desires, you're actually following God's desires. As I heard John Piper say one time, freedom is not doing whatever you want to do. Freedom is doing whatever you want to do when whatever you want to do is what God wants you to do. It's a totally different mindset, a totally different way of thinking about it. Why? Because God has changed your heart. He's put his spirit in you and will convince you, will persuade you to live his way. This is the way of freedom. It's a different way of looking at things altogether. I mean, years ago, when I first started teaching, I went on a two or three day training course uh, for all the people that were going to work in the financial accounting train, uh, the accounting training place that I was going to teach in. And I remember I was sort of really scared at the time. I mean, really scared about beginning to teach and so on. And the type of accounting I did particularly scared me a little bit because it was just quite sort of open ended. 
And I remember hanging around with some tax accountants there, some people who were about to start teaching tax. And I remember being envious of them. Maybe I'm the only person in the room who's ever been envious of tax accountant tutors, but there we go. And the reason was, is because tax, it seemed to me, which is very logical, there were steps, it was always the same. I thought that sounds like it would be quite straightforward to teach. But the thing was, I was not free to teach tax because the qualification I'd done, I hadn't really studied a lot of it, and so I wasn't allowed to do it. Well, then what happened? As the years went by, I got used to what I taught and I started to enjoy it. And I actually started to think, man, I'm, I'm glad I can't teach tax, okay? Because I started to think, I, I like what I'm doing here. I don't want to teach that. And it completely meant I had a complete change of heart. On the one hand, I used to think to myself, I'm not free to teach tax. But now my heart has changed. Now I think to myself, yes, I'm free to not teach tax. That means if somebody comes in, a tax tutor, and they're ill one day, I can sympathize and put a big beaming smile on and cock my head to the side and say, I feel very sorry for you, but I cannot cover you. <laughs> so on the one hand, I used to think, oh, no, I'm not free to teach tax. Now I think to myself, no, no, I'm free to not teach tax. And that's something like what being a Christian is. I gave up drinking just before I became a Christian, as it happens, but I knew at the time I was white-knuckling it. It was all willpower. I knew it wouldn't have lasted. But once I became a Christian, all of a sudden I found it rather easy. I didn't want to drink anymore. My desire, I'd had a heart, a heart change. Somebody came to me and said, oh, you're a Christian, so I say, you're not free to drink anymore. I'd say, no, no, I'm free not to drink anymore. It's a completely different way of thinking about it. Let me make clear, because every time I talk about this, my wife Becky always says, you can't just make out that it's wrong to drink. It's not wrong to drink, it's just wrong to get drunk, okay? Because I had a drink problem, I have to give up altogether. But please don't feel bad if you drink. Whenever I talk about this, I think my wife feels bad, so she asked me to say this this time as she took a second sip of her gin and tonic for the evening, okay? <laughs> but it's true of many other things. Someone says, oh, so you're a Christian, so you're not free to gossip. No, no, I'm free not to gossip. Someone says, oh, you're a Christian, so you're not free to watch porn. No, I'm free to not watch porn. Someone says, you're a Christian, oh, so you can't sleep around. You're, you're not free to sleep around. No, I'm free to not sleep around. It's a totally different way of thinking about it. And if that way of thinking about it hasn't set a light in you, if you're stuck in bondage to a particular sin at the moment, can I finish by saying this? Get a revelation. Hear it from the Lord. That actually, the devil may be telling you, you'll never get free of this, you're in bondage to it. You're not. You have the means of freedom on the inside of you. If the devil is saying to you right now, no, 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 come on, you've been in this for years, you know you're never going to get out of this, you know, this is not the end of all your troubles, you just say to him, no, I've got the spirit on the inside of me, and this is the beginning of all your troubles, yeah? Because greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. You have the means of freedom on the inside of you. Now, yeah, there's more to it than that. It takes some working out. Look back at Andrew's message from last week. You know, this is uh, never alone, forever free. He looked at never alone, um, never the same. Have a look back at that. But the point is, you can be free. You are free. Accept that. Don't accept defeat before the battle has even started. The freedom papers have been signed. You just got to start living in it. Just that change of mind, that you're free to live the right way, just that will be a powerful thing for you. So because the Holy Spirit has come to live on the inside of us, we are free to live a life without fear. And because the Holy Spirit is on the inside of us, we are free to live a life not in bondage to sin, not in bondage to rule keeping, 
but a life of love, a life by the way of spirit. We're free to live the new life. Thank you.